Welcome to Game Over Montreal. What a way to end a night of hockey. Oh my god, that was insane. Uh, obviously, we've got to give credit to the coaching staff and the players for holding their cool in that one, as much as I think I would speak for many people in saying that you probably wanted to see some more fight in that first period. I think the fact that they stayed cool paid off. I've uh, got lots to talk about tonight. There's uh, obviously a lot to talk about with this game in specifically. Uh, Sam Montebo's first game in a bit. How did he play? All that stuff. We've got a great guest coming on in a second here in Mitch Brown from Elite Prospects. And maybe if we really want to get into it, we can talk about Shane Pinto being suspended for half of a season for sports betting and the NHL not giving us any clarity on that. But hey, if you want to hear about that, definitely tune into Game Over Ottawa after you check out this show. All right, let's welcome in Mitch. Mitch. From Elite Prospects, Mr. Brown, how you doing? How could I not be doing great? That was an amazing finish to the game. That was super cool. I was not anticipating that, especially after the start. I thought it was just going to be a chippy mess, and then it turned out to be one of the better games of the year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I got to give credit to the to the team and the coaching staff. That I think the first couple shifts of the game, the Canadians, to my eye, looked pretty good. They were making good, crisp passes. It seemed like they were mostly controlling play and then there's that hit from behind that they uh for some reason decide to even up that call when it probably should have been a major and then another hit from behind a couple shifts later that they again even up and i i thought that the canadians were going to completely lose their composure i thought jack guy was going to come out of the 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 penalty box and just start destroying guys but instead they kind of just played out the period didn't push that hard. They were a little bit sloppy, ended up behind 2-0. But it seems like that's that play worked out. Like, not losing it really worked out. Certainly. And as a young team, you know, you're not going to be able to get the perfect response every single time. But like you said, I thought it was going to get really bad. And, you know, especially because Jack Guy's involved in it. But he, he looks a lot better this season in a lot of ways. But he kept his composure there. And then... You know, they really came back to life in the second and third period and they stuck with it, pushed it to overtime. Uh, the power play was very interesting. You could see in real time how they were like, huh, the Suzuki Caulfield thing isn't working. Let's try a different look. And then they scored on two different looks down the stretch. Yeah, it's funny because the same thing happened in the last game in that the thing that they were doing consistently clearly wasn't working. And New, New Jersey was reading that drop pass in the power play entries so easily because what team that plays the Canadians doesn't know they're going to do the drop pass to Nick Suzuki in the neutral zone. They're like two zone backward drop pass. But everyone on the Devils last game was expecting Matheson to do the drop pass. And he realized that he had a completely open lane to the net split the D and scored this highlight real goal. And it's essentially how they've scored their last three power plays is they just had this wake up moment where the thing that they were doing isn't available. Hey, let's try something else. And Hey, guess what? Other things work. You know, Michael McCarr is off to a really good start this season. And I think that goal against New Jersey really showed that. And then also some of his work today. I mean, that crazy flip pass that he had, he was very elusive from the, from the point, very patient, I think Matheson is a player who he has great tools, sometimes not always aware of options. And we're seeing him grow in this system that 
really promotes a lot of off puck movement, a lot of creativity. He looks, this is the best hockey I think he's ever played in his career in terms of decision-making, creativity, and offensive output. And then as for the power play specifically, that, the first power play goal, they flipped the flanks. I, I don't think it was intentional. I think it was just how they came into the zone. And so you had Suzuki on Caulfield's side and Caulfield on the opposite. And then that completely changed the complexion of everything because the Columbus didn't know how to anticipate what was coming next because they're so used to just seeing Suzuki pass the puck to Caulfield who couldn't receive a pass this game for whatever reason. So Suzuki was able to then get a different look, pass it back to Matheson and so on. And then the third one was Caulfield Instead of not winding up a one-timer, he was looking for cues from the net front player, Sean Monahan, I think, to see if he was going to be open. Matheson dropped the puck in at the right time. Caulfield just zipped it in. Perfect deflection. These are the type of plays that you want to see on your power play, on your first unit. You want to see more creativity. You don't want to see them force plays that aren't there. You want to see them adapt. And I think even though there was some very frustrating work early on in today's game, this is a positive step forward in the right direction. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think the one thing that I would like to see them incorporate more in in their power play is just to be a little bit less patient, you know, and patience is usually a good thing. But I feel like that power play is constantly searching for the perfect play when you look at Columbus, right? And we all know Columbus is not a very good team, just like the Montreal Canadiens are not a a very good team at this point in, in time. Columbus has some top heavy players, though. Obviously, Adam Fantilli is going to be a superstar. Johnny Gaudreau is an offensive star in this league still. They've got some good utility players to make things happen on the power play. But everything that I saw on on their power play, it wasn't like this genius structure or anything. It was like two to three passes and shot. Two to three passes and shot. It was like, it wasn't like they were taking bad shots, but it was like the fact that they were always about to shoot was making the Canadians scramble and opening up passing lanes through the middle and the Canadians just don't do that enough. Do you, do you think it's just that they're they know that the power play is not great and they're like overthinking things or is it a situation where maybe they don't think they have the the tools, not the tools, but like the players necessarily to win those pucks back if they shoot too quickly? I think it's because they run everything through Nick Suzuki. Nick Suzuki is a guy who is always hunting for the perfect play. That's what makes him special. It's also what makes him very frustrating at times. Um, He's always looking for the perfect opportunity. He'll slow down. He'll wait. He'll wait. He'll wait. And he'll lose other opportunities in doing so, hoping that he can create something else down the line. When it works, you know, this is what Nick Suzuki does. He's brilliant, but sometimes you would like to see a little bit more urgency from him or at the very least play a little bit more of a focused give-and-go style. So pass it, immediately get it back, and then try a different look. Um, of course, that is easier said than done on this Montreal Canadiens team that can be very sure. disjointed at times. Uh, if you're just looking at the power play, Matheson isn't always great at delivering pucks at the right time. I think there are a lot of times where Suzuki wants to start a passing play and then the puck just never comes back to him. So, you know, as the team gets more talented, as the team gets more confident, I think you're going to see them speed up just because they're going to be giving Suzuki more opportunities to play at a higher pace. Yeah, yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see if they can actually grow this a little bit. I know that uh, we've mentioned several times in the show that uh, Marty St. Louis before the season had mentioned that they don't really, or up to this point in his tenure, they have not really practiced the power play a lot. They're much more focused on 
uh, creating the right habits at five on five. And I think he actually said special teams in general, they don't practice as much. And I think a lot of people got upset about that, but I totally understand where St. Louis is coming from. Like if you're not um, like competing to win at the moment, what's the point in spending time on special teams when you can, like you're building for the future, right? You can kind of get to special teams later. You're not dealing with the whole roster, right? It is more specialized. That's why they're special teams. But I also see the point of people saying that the power play saps the momentum out of games a lot and sucks the the wind out of the bell center a lot. But tonight they managed to to get through. And I think it's good. I think this is the kind of game that keeps the, the team in like, uh, I'm trying to think of the word here, but like connected and not like happy is the wrong word, but like energetic, keeping that energy in the room, keeping the vibes good. Because I guarantee every single player on that team after the first period thought they were being jobbed. So to come out with a win after being down three to one, I feel like they probably feel like they beat two teams tonight. Not that they didn't have their own power play opportunities, but even some of the power plays that Columbus did get, I think are highly questionable. The The first uh, penalty that uh, Fantilli took or uh, drew, he just stepped on the puck. Like they're, they're, it's a, a very questionable not saying there's any bias, but it was a questionable game in terms of officiating. And I think that those games, when you can manage to win them, I think they like they follow through later in the season, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. And I also think they're valuable for fans as well. This is a team yes. that probably isn't going to win that many games. And if you want to keep fan interest and excitement high, you need to have one or two of these every little while. And they're in a great position with Caulfield and Suzuki. They really need a they really need another guy on that line. They really they need do. another guy on that line desperately. But you know, the base here for a very exciting, very high octane, high scoring team is there. And it's just gonna come down to how they develop, how they draft, and how they insulate the rest of the lineup with free agent signings and trades and so on. Yeah, there's a lot of work to be done uh, for the Montreal Canadiens, but yeah, lot, lots of good stuff in this one. I think before we uh, move on to the next topic, I do want to talk about uh, Sam Montembeau, but before I do, I'm just going to mention for everybody in the chat, if you stick around to the end, we have a new segment this year where we're going to have questions and answers, a, a presser of sorts where you can ask us questions. If you've got prospect questions for Mitch, I mean, that's, you got the gold standard here. Uh, Mitch is going to give you the details, so hold those for the end. Don't throw them in the chat yet. I will let you know when we're ready for them, but stick around and make sure to like the stream and uh, subscribe to SDPN. It always helps. And if you want to give us a share on your favorite social media of choice, hey, that helps too. Um, so Sam Montembeau, I think he, like the Canadians got better as the game went on, but he's looking real scrambly this year. I know neither of us are goaltending experts, Mitch, but... What are your thoughts on Sam Montebo after this one? He has trouble tracking the puck. He doesn't see a lot of pucks that he should see. He has difficulty pulling his head around defenders, getting his head over or over attackers, getting them around attackers and so on. You see him routinely on the wrong side of the of the player in front. You know, he's one of those guys though where like pucks just still hit him somehow. <laughs> You know, you don't see a ton of clean goals against him. If they go in, they kind of like go off his glove and in. They kind of deflect off him. And a lot of his saves are just like very weird kind of. He doesn't see it until the last second. He just waves his hand and like the top of his glove gets it or whatever. Uh, 
he is kind of the perfect goalie for where this team is at now in a strange way where he keeps it fresh. He's entertaining. He can give them a chance in any given night, but he could also lose them in the game on any given on any given night. I, you know, this is why they keep picking goalies in the mid rounds, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it looks like they got a pretty decent one in Jacob Fowler. Uh, I know that there's uh, uh, some conditioning that has to be done for him, but he seems to be absolutely dominant every league that he plays in. I think he's off to a pretty good start in uh, NCAA as well as so the first season of college hockey for him. So he, he seems to be the guy who's the goalie of the future for now, just like Primo was the goalie of the future when he was in his first year of NCAA and also doing yeah, great. So goalies, yeah, it's a fun time. Yeah, I think you're right. The tracking the puck is the biggest issue for Montembeau because like, I'm looking back on the goals and – the third goal for Columbus really bothered me, even though it's a great play. It's a good goal. But if you watch it in slow-mo, I feel like Montebo doesn't start moving to the center of the net until after the puck is dropped. Yeah. And that's an issue. He's going to be a very that. interesting player to watch moving forward, just because like, He's so he is creative in his strengths. Like you do see a lot of good movement out of him. He can be entertaining to watch. It's just like, how do you fix something in a player that's at this age, at this stage of development? But goalies are strange. Like, you know, he might just come back in January and just be like 930 goalie down the stretch, torquing everyone, seeing every puck, you know, acrobatic saves in the Sam Montembeau way. So we'll see what happens with him. Yeah, pardon me. I'm just crying here, you know. <laughs> coughing <clears throat> the third goal was just so bad you just couldn't it was so it bad anymore. sam you made me cry <laughs> cried more than hot wings night uh in the hot ones challenge just take care cold man every october is brutal it's like hey would you like to work harder than you've ever worked in your life and deal with colds all the time nhl schedule train new people for your job <laughs> november it'll be all right but october Tough time for me. All right. Um, I did want to do like a bit of a young player check-in with you because uh, the way you describe and break down individual tool sets and, and progress is just excellent. And I feel like people need to hear your breakdowns. There's been a lot of talk about Uri Slavkovsky so far this year. Obviously, uh, not putting up a lot of points, but by the eye test and the underlying numbers, pretty big improvement over last year it seems like he's caught up to nhl speed there's some things he needs to work on specifically i find like the precision of his plays needs to be a lot higher but this year he seems to always or at least mostly be making the right play which has been an issue for him so far i like the creativity that he shows especially in transition i mean that little spin pull that he had uh, in the third period was really sick. We can ignore the play that he chose to make afterwards. But you see a lot of these like little lateral passes. He'll get the puck along the boards, pitch it to the inside. He'll take the puck in the middle, pitch it to the outside after getting two defenders towards him. And it's those types of little plays that you didn't see from Slavkovsky in his draft year. He wasn't the type of guy who was, say, create the perfect lane in transition or open up a great opportunity. He was much more of a hunt the perfect play down, throw the puck into the slot afterwards and get a shot to play in the NHL. You can't do that. You have to make these little plays that build the offense up the ring. He's starting to figure that out. As you said, Andrew, the precision is a massive problem. He does not adapt to passing lanes ever. He sees it. He's like, I can get this thing through. I'll just throw it harder. I'll do it faster. They won't be able to intercept it. And then they do, or they deflect it a little bit. 
So he'll need to find ways, specifically like pulling the puck in towards his feet before releasing, reaching out, passing around sticks and so on, trying to adapt a little bit. And I'd also like to see him add a little bit more board play to his game. So we saw it late where he was able to cut away from one check, cut back the other, and then power through the next guy who almost stripped him of the puck. You want to see kind of more of that, a little bit more patience, hang on to the puck longer, wait for lanes to open up. So really, it's just going to come down to precision and aggression. And that's a a long development curve. Like, I don't think he's going to be figuring it out this year. But precision, aggression, be willing to make more plays to the middle, be willing to attack the inside with a defender on your back, improving the playmaking, proving the vision, proving the precision. These are going to be his development keys. I think he has really exciting first overall caliber flashes, but perhaps those aren't as frequent as you would like for a draft plus two first overall pick at this stage. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, I, I like that you mentioned the board play because I feel like there's there's like a separation for him where you see him this year more willing to instead of trying to go to the middle and lose the puck in situations where he doesn't have an option, he does go to the boards. Whereas last year he wouldn't, and he'll like engage or like challenge a player to engage him with the puck to open up space for his teammates. But in terms of his like ability to evade people along the boards, it's just not there. And if he can't overpower a guy, oftentimes he's going to end up losing the puck or end up getting knocked down or uh, try to do something where it doesn't work, try to like slam a puck through a guy's uh, feet on the boards and end up behind him, stuff like that. Like you can see the improvement there in decision-making, but not all the development is done. And I feel like he's such a tantalizing player because you can see, especially this year, I think compared to last year, you can see the player that he can be, but I feel like the Canadians need to hit a lot of hole-in-ones, essentially, to get him to be, like, uh, the best player that he could possibly be. Whereas some other players in recent picks, uh, recent years are more sure things to, like, hit that ceiling. Yeah, absolutely. And part of that is just the the draft itself, right? It was a, it was a draft where there were 8 to 10 guys who were all kind of in roughly the same tier who all have real chances of being... Uh, say, the best player from the draft. So in that case, the odds aren't really in Slavkovsky's favor. You know, maybe he might have the highest percentage of those guys being the best player in the draft, 20%, but 80% is still everyone else combined. But I think if you detach yourself from that a little bit and look at it more in the context of here's a guy who has the physical tools to do whatever he wants in the NHL, he very clearly wants to be a player. He's a hard worker then you can start taking a little bit more of a patient approach with him and understand that this is going to be a process. I think the last thing that they want to do is a capo caco him where they never properly identify what he's bad at and what he's Mm. good at. So like part of the issue with caco is right. He was this dominant boards player in league. It comes to the NHL. He can't do it. And the Rangers have not really given him any other abilities at this point. So he's still just trying to do the same things over and over and over again. And he's got a ton of finesse. So he can still score 40 points, but getting over that hump is going to be really hard. With Montreal, you're starting to see they're giving Slavkovsky more ways to impact the game than mm-hmm. the Rangers have given Kako. They they have started giving him the transition passing. Kako starting to or Slavkovsky starting to apply 
more of these important skills, as you mentioned, you know, with the board play, trying to be the guy who initiates these sequences. These are all things that we're going to want to see from Slavkovsky because we don't want him to follow down the path of just being middle six score. Yeah. Uh, There will be growing pains in the process. So just be aware of that. There's going to be rough games. There's going to be mistakes, but you got to live with that. Yeah, my my mantra for this whole show, like for this is the third year, I just say development's not linear, right? Yeah. It's just not a straight up uh, linear line on a, on a graph. It, it goes up and down, things happen. Uh, Secret Agent Man in the chat said uh, that Slavkovsky missed half a year. Should we be judging him as a draft plus two player despite that? Uh, yeah, sure. I yeah. mean, lots of players miss time. And I like I think it's a valid point that in the sense that, you know, his his draft plus one year isn't the standard draft plus one year. Um, but certainly that's true for a lot of players around the time, given the COVID years that impact players development and so on. Like these players now are, are going to undergo even stranger development arcs than before. You know, every single one of them is going to be is going to look different than they would have just five years ago because the COVID completely changed the complexion of development. You know, some guys don't even have skating coaches that otherwise would have had them and so on just because of the way this all worked. And so, yeah, it's a valid point, but I think it's something that we got to apply to pretty much every prospect in the sport at this stage. It's true. I, I think you always want to bring in like the individual context, but when you're looking at the broad spectrum, it's kind of hard to do that for every single guy. Uh, yeah. Ian Bovere, friend of the show, uh, says, it's a good thing the guys who picked Kako Kabokako are nowhere near this team. Don't Google this. I would say, I think that the Slavkovsky development so far and the way that the Montreal Canadiens have approached development, to me, I think Jeff Gordon has learned from mistakes he made in uh, in New York, in, in Manhattan for the, for the New York Rangers. Because I know we had... Um, Shane Malloy on the show last year. And he mentioned that when Jeff Gorton was in uh, New York, they had no skills coach whatsoever, like no real development plan for the American hockey league, no NHL level development plan. So you had guys like Leah Anderson, guys like Cabo Caco, Alex Lafreniere, who were just thrown into the NHL at a young age without much guidance. And it was kind of the same strategies the Canadians used to have under Bergevin was like, hey, if you're an NHL player, you'll find a way to stick. And just not everyone is Brendan Gallagher where their game translates really well and he's going to work so hard that he breaks seven bones a game and still plays through it. So hopefully they've learned their lesson and the structure that the Canadians have for development is working slightly well so far, at least. What do you think, Mitch? I think there are positive returns for the most part. I think we're looking at as a whole is do the majority of prospects in this system add something new to their game every single year. And the answer for this team is overwhelmingly yes. Now, of course, there are some players who haven't improved as much as others, and that's okay. There will always be busts in a system. There will always be guys who just simply for no fault of their own can't improve at the rate that others do. But yeah, I think the early returns are quite positive with, with the Montreal Canadiens development. We'll see, though. You know, this thing can change overnight, it seems like. Things happen so quickly in the sport. Yeah, especially with injuries, right? Like, yeah. it, we've seen already this year, no, uh, nobody expected to not have Kirby Doc for this entire season. And that's another young player. Everyone was expecting to take steps. And early in the season, it, it looked like he was going to. Uh, Sebastian Jackson in the chat brings up uh, Philip Meshar, or Meshar, 
seems to be a lot of criticism of Meshar as a prospect. I know that he didn't have the greatest season in Kitchener last year. It seemed like Kitchener was a bit of a mess. He's only 19. Going back to junior, people seem to be upset about that. Where are you at with uh, Meshar? Yeah, so he should have been going back to Kitchener. It, like that, that decision should have been made last last spring. <laughs> like it, there shouldn't have been any doubt about that. You know, you stick him in preseason, see what happens. But in my mind, it was the best situation for him. Uh, Kitchener's on a little bit of a shooting percentage bender right now, so I would expect they're going to slow down a fair bit. But Mashar is going to step in, be a top line guy. I think what we're really looking for from him is being able to create more favorable situations for himself. So not just being able to exploit a defender's gap, to to be able to manipulate it. Like faking the defender one way, going the other. That That's not necessarily something he'll have to do in the NHL, but you want to see him give himself more ways to create offense, more ways to impact a game, because when you step up every level, usually you lose something. And you have to have another solution in your skill set to figure that out. So for him, just figuring out new ways to impact the game, getting stronger, improving his puck protection, improving his defense, so on and so forth. Yeah, Evan B. mentions it's because of Kulich. And there is a lot of comparisons to Yuri Kulich. But I feel like we need to say the development path of Yuri Kulich is like not a common path. Like (laughs) he's absolutely lighting it up again this year in the American Hockey League. That like that kid's just incredible, and I think it's okay if even if he was drafted uh, before that Mishar is probably not going to be quite as good as Yuri Coolidge. Yeah, and on top of that too, like a lot of this comes down to fit. AHL scoring is very strange. You know, there are guys who score zero point seven five points per game and then go to the fourth line the next year. Things can change really fast in that league. That's a it's an it's a league that is overcoached relative to the average skill level of things. Um, I think Kulik is a very interesting player because he's an insanely hard worker, great shooter. There's still some questions as to, as to how it will translate, but there really isn't much of a spot for him in Buffalo's top nine. Like they have a lot of skilled forwards who project to be in that second or third line range, and they're going to have to kick out some serious talent to be able to take those spots. Um, in Mashara's case, you know he has a pretty he has a pretty straightforward pathway if he wants to if he can improve. So, you know, I would not, I think Kulik is obviously a better prospect than Mashar, but I would not use that as a way to be disappointed in Mashar. I would be looking more at, say, the fact that he wasn't necessarily a consistent offensive force last year in Kitchener as the primary concern here, rather than comparing him to other people who are in more favorable positions. Yeah, it's it's very true. Oh, friend of uh, bo- both of us, David St. Louis in the chat. Uh-oh. Says some players are just tailor made for the American Hockey League. Yuri Kulit is one of them. Yeah, this is the most tame thing that he said to me in weeks. So you know, like, <laughs> I mean, I, I've seen some of the uh, elite prospects chat from uh, from our friend Lauren Kelly. It seems Uh-oh. like you guys have a lot of fun over there. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's really bad. Uh, I'll have to talk to Lauren to to <laughs> hide my name. I don't <laughs> want people does. to know all my crazy prospect takes. <laughs> She hides names. Don't worry. I wouldn't throw oh Lauren under the bus too much. <laughs> uh, what about Joshua Wall? Have you had a chance to see him this season? You know, we, you mentioned uh, production in the American Hockey League can go all over the place, but pretty much a dream start for him in the American Hockey League with the Laval Rocket. So I have not seen him, but 
in the chat david st louis has and he Ooh, made a david. great seven or eight minute video on our youtube channel about it so i will regurgitate all of the little information that he spewed in that <laughs> but everyone check out that video as well go, no, no, go no, no, to the no. i'm presenting as my own information this is the key here I, <laughs> okay I did don't this. watch it <laughs> i did this so i i think well obviously he's he, he percentages are in his favor right i think realistically he's not a two points per game guy in the ahl but he is, is the type of, <laughs> he is the type of player who will score in the a usually you know he plays the system he's a very hard worker he's great at getting pucks you know in tight areas and so on whacking them whacking at them pulling them to the middle so on and so forth the type of stuff that you're going to see a lot of greasy offense he can shoot it off the pass as well I think in Joshua Waugh's case, the interesting wrinkle to his game is that he's kind of annoying to play against. And what I mean by that is it like he can be very annoying to play against. There are some times, like especially in high leverage situations where everyone around him just hates him. And the projection here is that you hope that he can leverage that every single game and kind of become the the Michael Bunting for Caulfield and Suzuki. Because right now it's a... Uh, you know, it, it's a four on five when those two guys step on ice because they have a two man game and whoever is on their line is just there to uh, slash people and skate in straight lines. So you'd hope that they he could become that guy who annoys people, can dig pucks off the boards, uh, get open in front of the net. He's not going to make any plays in transition. He's a chip and chase guy through and through. But you certainly hope that in time he can add just that little extra layer of skill that will help him become the solution to the Montreal Canadiens' probably biggest problem that they have in terms of roster construction at this point. Yeah, and I know a lot of people would say that they also need him on there or someone like him who has a bit of defensive pedigree as well just to to help them out a bit. But you know what? I, I feel like everybody has talked this season about, obviously Nick scored tonight. Uh, Suzuki got his first goal of the year. Caulfield with the OT winner. I think it was a two or three point night for both of them. Uh, so great night for that line. It's been a, a couple games of struggles uh, overall for both of them. But um, nobody really seems to be talking about the fact that their defensive play this year has markedly improved. Uh, I was looking it up on Natural Stat Trick last week. No, it's Thursday today. Yesterday for the Hockey Inside Out show for the Montreal Gazette. And last year, those two together had an expected goals against of about 3.15 goals against per 60. And their actual goals against was actually higher than that. It was terrible. And this year, both of them are just a share, a tiny little bit over two goals against per two expected goals against per 60 uh, at even strength. That's massive improvement, small sample size, but pretty big. I think it's probably more reflective, too, of Suzuki's actual defensive ability. He's yeah. one of those guys who people watch him and they're like, oh, yeah, this dude is good defensively. And then the numbers suggest that he isn't great defensively. But you also have to disentangle it from the fact that he's literally everything for the Montreal Canadiens, right? Like he's yep. he's oh, he's overburdened. I mean, he's the guy on his line. He's the guy who has to play defense. He's the guy who has to make all the plays in transition. He's a guy who has to pull the puck off the boards. He has to be the playmaker. He has to be the play builder, the table setter type guy. He has to do literally everything. And so I understand when people are like, oh, I wish he'd shoot more. But it's like, I don't know if he physically can. This dude has to carry his line up and down the ice every single shift. And like Caulfield is amazing, but he is limited in his own ways. Yeah. And 
they really need someone. I mean, the better the team gets and the more that they can share that burden amongst the three forwards on that line, the better their numbers are going to be. Like, it's just too much for one player. And on top of that, you know, Suzuki does play this style that isn't necessarily conducive to having a great expected goal share. He's more of a patient, perfect play guy. He's willing to concede a medium danger chance at one end of the rink for for a chance that he could create a high danger chance at the other end of the rink. Um, sometimes it doesn't work. Well, most of the time it doesn't work out. But <laughs> I, it's just a very, it's a very bad situation to be nick suzuki and yet he's still a terrific player yeah i I try to like talk about that as much as i can because i feel like people don't truly understand and i think it's harder to make the excuses for suzuki now he's like 24 years old but also if you look at his underlying numbers so far this year they're actually really good it's really just the scoring that hasn't been there this year and and the power play obviously which as we mentioned there's the good and bad with Nick Suzuki there. So it the amount of pressure on one player does matter. You know, like we, we saw back when Carlson was doing his thing with the Ottawa Senators, there was a lot of talk on like Senators uh, stats amongst Senator stats. People, Michael Blake McCurdy, I believe actually created a metric to try to like understand how much offensive pressure a player is under to like do everything for their team. And Carlson was like consistently the guy in the league who had the most pressure on him. And I feel like Suzuki offensively and defensively is in that category of like, just everything runs through him at all times. And also he's the only one who never gets hurt or at least plays hurt. This is why I picked him in my fantasy team in the elite prospects fantasy pool. (laughs) I picked him because like, he's invincible. You can't injure this dude, no matter what. Don't say that out loud, Mitch. <laughs> Don't say yeah, that out I'm loud. So, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm i just Ryan high because uh, Suzuki finally got points, and I, I was feeling good about it. My first ever fantasy hockey endeavor is looking pretty good so far. And thank there you, you Nick Suzuki. <laughs> All right. There was, uh, there was a good question here. Actually, just a comparable. Evan B said, uh, I think it was referring to Joshua Waugh. Is he like an Alex Burroughs 2.0? Just the way you described him, it, it kind of does sound a little bit like Alex Burroughs. I know scouts hate comparables, but playing style. I mean, I, he needs to he needs to become crazier. Yeah, he's I think, I think fighting people. He's, you know, a lot of a lot of guys you want them to become you know more skilled. I mean, Wall would obviously benefit from more skill, but I think the biggest part of his projection is becoming just like I hate saying it out loud, but like tougher to play against, more annoying, right. become you know just force the Michael Bunting tape on this guy forever. Just see how Michael Bunting annoys people, you know, constantly talking, but it's more about how he's just like, you know, kind of in their way, you know, you go to sprint in the play and Michael Bunting's just in front of you. And you're like, well, get out of here. What are you doing here? And then you, then you're going to your bench and then Michael Bunting is there in your way. And you're like, how did you do this? You know, they got to have more guys who do that sometimes. Yeah. It's almost like if you could keep it to a Habs example, we could say like a Thomas, a little bit of Thomas Kanich. Yeah, 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 definitely. Just kind of like like weirdly annoying. Yeah, for a long time in his career, I don't think Habs fans knew how much like every other team hated Thomas Bukanich. Yeah. And it's not even like dirty stuff. It's little stuff like the the talking at the face-off circle or like a little sneaky butt end in the ribs, which I guess is dirty stuff. But it's not like, you know, hits from behind kind of thing, intent to injure. It's just little stuff that hurts you enough to be annoyed and gets you off your game. I know like Brad Marchand has mentioned that he hated playing against Thomas Pukanich. 
And it's like, if you're annoying Brad Marchand, you're doing a good job annoying people because he's the premium annoyer in the league. Yes, and he was so good at um, cans that was. was so good at, like, making the guy that he's on be behind the play. You know, like, he would just, like, yeah. have the guy, like, he'd just push him off into a corner or whatever, then skate up the ring, and you'd be like, wait, where is the guy that he's supposed to be defending? Oh, he took him out of the play away on the other end of the rink. Oh, man. All right, coming up quick here, we're going to do our presser. Uh, don't get your questions in quite yet, but uh, we, I'm gonna, I am gonna. I want to touch on this Shane Pinto thing quickly. I'm not going to get too deep into it, but just let's first let's get your take on it, Mitch. What is your view of what just happened in the NHL where they suspended a player for half a season and allowed the suspension to start at game one, even though he's not under contract and he can sign after the cutoff for the year. So like they're, they're giving two concessions to this player, despite not letting him play for half a season. And they're saying that he didn't bet on NHL games, but betting on other sports is allowed according to the CBA. I'm so confused about what the hell is going on here. Where are you at? Yeah. I mean, this is just ridiculous. They're just making up the rules as they go along. Like I like, I, so I want to be, be in the room and figure out how those negotiations are going. Is the NHL like, yeah, we need to do this, 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 and this. And Pierre Dorian is like, no. And then the NHL is like, thinks that they're powerless or something like how <laughs> I don't understand the dynamic in this, but I did see, I think it was Elliot Friedman who brought up that it's he, they caught him because it, it appears that maybe someone was using his account to bet and it wasn't him. And okay. so that would be why they suspended him. And it's like, you know, I think sports betting is just, is just terrible. For a variety of reasons, I'm not really a big gambling guy. I'm not judging people who sports better or whatever. Like, go make your money, have your fun. But it's not for me. But I, you know, I, I, I just think it's ridiculous. Just like let them play hockey. You know, you know, like, yeah. If you're gonna, if you're going to go to the negotiating table with the NHLPA on how you want to handle his suspension, your heart is really not into suspending him anyway, is it? Well, like, I mean. To, to give, it's really the biggest suspension in, like, modern NHL history, right? Because you could argue Todd Bertuzzi's suspension was bigger or Marty McSorley's because he retired. But in the at the end of the day, Bertuzzi missed 17 games for almost killing someone. <laughs> With like, completely out of the play. You know, like there's been plays where players have had their careers ended that have resulted in almost nothing. So to have this big of a suspension... There has to have been something crazy untoward going on. Like, if it was just a friend that used his account, and they can prove that, which would mean that he isn't, like, suspended for life. <clears throat> like, to me, to get 41 games, it would have to be, like, him giving a friend money to bet on the NHL games. But even that, I would assume, would be a much bigger suspension. It's like, this size of suspension is... <coughs> excuse me too big for a minor infraction and too light for a major one yeah it just seems very like it doesn't seem to fit and and we also like the fact that the suspension is retroactive right so now we're in this position where we don't know when the ottawa senators would have even would have even been able to make space to sign shane pinto so like how much time is he realistically going to lose as a consequence of the suspension rather than a consequence of the contract dispute like the whole thing is just so ridiculous 
uh, just very NHL to manage it this way. And again, I don't like I I I don't know what the CBA says. I personally don't think he should be suspended for whatever, but that's just my opinion. But I, even given that, I mean, you look at this and it just it just seems like it's been so poorly managed, which is just how the NHL seems to operate lately. Yeah, it's it's a it's a mess. The NHL seems to really enjoy stopping headlines but they make the headlines bigger in in doing so you know whether it's the pride tape shenanigans which as i said on the last show was just so fundamentally stupid like not even just on like a a beliefs thing but just like we're banning colored tape like how how dumb do you have to be as an organization top down for that to go through and be like, yeah, this is the thing we're actually going to do. And it's the same thing here. It seems like there's just no forethought into anything that they do. All right. Uh, let's get some questions in for the presser here. <clears throat> Remember Mitch is a prospect guy. So you can ask whatever you want uh, about prospects and hopefully he'll have watched them. And if not, he'll uh, steal David's words for him. That's right. And be fun. Uh, Pierre Lebrun said there was another person involved in uh, the betting. Yeah, I mean, that that tracks. I feel like this whole situation, the NHL, <clears throat> when they released their statement and said, we consider the case closed, it can't stay that way. Like, they people deserve that? to know. Yeah, they did. So they suspended a dude for 41 games and then never explained why. <laughs> uh, yeah. That he didn't... They said he didn't bet on NHL games, but they consider the the case closed. And they're just like, you know, no more comment. And it's like, I don't know what you think this is, but you're a public company. <laughs> and like, the fans pay everybody's salaries here. So uh, you kind of do owe an explanation. <clears throat> Trizak says, does Mitch sharpen his knives on his jawline? Uh, I think it might just be nice lighted. <laughs> Although, weirdly enough, I did just sharpen my knife the other day. I did a very poor job of it because it's been a year and a half. But, you know, uh, I did not use my jaw, no. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Matthew Barrett says, is trading prospects to acquire Mantha, Anthony Mantha, sensible? You know, the rumor that I saw going around was that the Capitals were thinking about trading Mantha for Armia, and that makes no sense from the Capitals' perspective, so I have no idea what's going on. But do you have any thoughts on Anthony Mantha? Mitch? Oh, oh yeah. I got a lot of thoughts on Anthony Mantha. Yeah? So, uh, insane shooter. Definitely the type of guy who, if he's in the right situation, could score 40 goals. I don't know if he'll ever score 40 goals again, considering the rest of his game is so flawed. He's similar, just like how we mentioned about Slavkovsky needing to add more ways to link the rest of his, the, you know, he needs to find ways to link the D zone to the O zone. And he, Slavkovsky's starting to do that through his transition passing. Anthony Mantha has never really consistently shown any ability to do that. So you would acquire him to be a development project who's also quite old, uh, arguably past his prime at this point, and provides no value to you if he's not scoring goals. So, I mean, yeah, you trade prospects for him because he's in the NHL and there's more potential. Like, he has more potential than most of the players in the system because he's already been a big goal scorer in the NHL. But... Is it a smart move? I don't know. You know, they have a lot of reclamation projects on this team right now. Yeah. And 
I think at some point they're going to have to start making decisions on who they're going to keep and who they're going to move. Yeah. And I think when you look at like Mantha's salary and it's always those like mid value contracts that pile up and get teams in cap trouble, right? It's, yeah. it's not necessarily style. Exactly. It's not necessarily the, um, the like Nick Suzuki contracts, stuff like that. Like, even if you end up thinking that you overpaid for Nick Suzuki, it's the like David Savard and Ben Sherratt and Joel Edmondson all making the same amount of money. And then you have like UL Armia and Paul Byron and <coughs> all these guys who are, you know, maybe shouldn't even be in the lineup at times making a lot of money. And that's kind of the issue with Mantha is when he isn't scoring, he maybe doesn't deserve to be in the lineup. So it, it's a tough one, even though like I understand the temptation he's a hometown guy he can score lots of goals he's got you know habs bloodlines but yeah it's a it's a one that i don't think they can afford to make while they still have brendan gallagher <clears throat> and frankly gallagher's been so good lately that i feel like his reclamation project and his whole game uh just is a lot more valuable yeah, and certainly from just like an organizational standpoint, having a guy like Gallagher is more valuable than having a big kind of not so good at protecting pucks, open ice shooter who, you know, like there's, it's just not a fit, I don't think. I think it would be an ill-advised move at absolute best. And then, you know, I say this and then he, they're going to trade from tomorrow and he's going to score 30 goals down the stretch. So, yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, Ian Boulevard says you can't have Mantha and Anderson. I feel like that's probably true. Although Anderson, yeah. like, man, he had a great game tonight. Just keep him away from Suzuki, man. Like, Yeah, that's the big deal. And maybe off the first power play unit because he, oh, he doesn't yeah. have the brain for it. But he actually made some plays tonight on the power play, which is, like, the first time. Like, he had some, some good passes. There were a couple passes that weren't meant for him that he, like, got in the way of and intercepted. Yeah. But... That's just kind of Josh. When he gets his first goal of the season, I think he's going to score a bunch. But uh, it's it's been a rough start for him in production. But again, another guy who year over year, uh, his underlying so far, absolutely stellar. Like, I wouldn't have believed it if somebody told me I didn't see it for myself. But like, I, uh, he's really improved. He has taken a lot of work that the, the team has given him to enhance his skill set. <clears throat> and obviously he's not a perfect player, but He's gotten a lot better. Let's see what else we got for questions here. Where would Mitch have taken Sam Benson in the draft from Bernardo Sonye? Sam Benson? Uh, sorry, Zach Benson. Oh, uh, I would have taken him fifth in the draft. That's where we ranked him at Elite Prospects, and I don't make my own draft ranking. So I would have taken him fifth. Life would have been great. Zach Benson looks very good. He's, you know, the tankiest five foot ten, hundred and fifty pound guy there is in the NHL. So yeah, I love that player. Yeah, he's uh, scintillating to watch. Honestly, um, would you have taken him above Mitchkov? I mean, I personally would not have, but like, I mean, there's definitely an argument for it, just given the uncertainty around Mitchkov. The upside is probably relatively somewhat similar when you add in all of the extra stuff that Benson brings beyond offense and, you know, zone entries and so on. But yeah, I don't know. I, I I've gotten to the point with prospect stuff where like if someone can tell me some crazy stuff and I'm like, you know what? I can see it because things just never go the way you think they're going to go. <laughs> yeah. I hear that. I hear that. Um, uh, Matthew Barrett asks, 
me oh he is asking me to share my byfield trade theory with mitch Uh-oh. so my this is my theory on what the like big habs move is this year is they <clears throat> i actually forget who i said they were trading for him i think it was josh anderson but uh josh anderson plus a bevy of prospects and picks <clears throat> just because they need to add a high caliber player and i just don't i'm not seeing the like the pathway in la right now for byfield He's stuck behind Deneau, Kopitar, and now Pierre-Luc Dubois, and I, it seems like he's got nowhere to go. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of people look at the look at Byfield and are like, you know, I struggle to see how this is going to be a great NHL player, but the Los Angeles Kings have also ruined pretty much every prospect they've come across in the last like half decade. So I think part of it is poor development. I mean, Quinton Byfield, extraordinary worker, high-character kid by all accounts, He's the type of player who should be improving exponentially. And for whatever reason, his improvement has been slow and steady. He's made progress, but only as much as what you would expect for being in such an environment that doesn't favor it. So I, it would be a good move, I think. I know I just said no more reclamation projects, but I feel like this is one where you have real upside and there's a really good fit with him and Martin St. Louis. A really good fit. Yeah. Absolutely. That would be, I think it'd be really, really interesting. I I think it could be, you know, the home run that the Canadians need if they could actually pry him out of LA, which of course is a gigantic if. Uh, There's a lot of really good questions here, guys, and I do want to get to them. But frankly, I kind of have to end the show because I ran out of my drink and I just keep on coughing and it's terrible to listen to. So I, I apologize. We'll have Mitch on again later in the season. Thank you so much for sticking through it with me. And uh, thanks to Mitch for coming on, <coughs> but I can't just keep coughing into the mic all night. I apologize, but uh, yeah, thanks to Mitch. Uh, before we go, Mitch, tell everybody where they can find your work. Head to epringside.com. We have a lot of great articles. Draft retrospective is back on. There might be a certain Montreal Canadiens defenseman that everyone knows and loves in draft retrospective this year coming soon. Head to our YouTube page, Elite Prospects. As I mentioned earlier, David St. Louis has a great art, a great video on Joshua Waugh that's worth checking out. And you can follow me on Twitter at Mitchell Brown while Twitter is still a thing. Um, yeah, social media is great, isn't it? It, it sure is. And uh, yeah, uh, Matthew Barrett saying, Fisherman's friend. Honestly, just a little bit of honey in, a, in some tea is all I need. I'm honestly at the end of this cold. It's just a little scratch in my throat that keeps on going and and makes me cough while I don't have anything to drink. Thanks, Mitch. Thanks to everybody for watching. We'll see you on Saturday for Game Over Montreal. It'll be Mark hosting because I'll be in Edmonton for the Heritage Classic for a big Game Over Calgary, Game Over Edmonton meetup. So if you're a Habs fan in Edmonton, uh, you can actually go to either either of the uh, Edmonton or Calgary streams. The link for the event is there. Tickets are free. It's at the Pint on White Ave in Edmonton after the Heritage Classic. We're going to do a live show, meet and greet. Now I've got Mitch Coffin, too. All right, everybody, we got to cut this before it's too late. See you next week.